Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. My name is Scott Lippman. It's a tremendous honor to, um, to moderate session five in this outstanding symposium. And this is focused on uh, cancer stem cells and, uh, and CIRM uh, awardees, grantees. And um, in this session, I'll say a few words about all the speakers, and then um, uh, there'll be no introduction between each one, and we'll have a, um, a discussion panel at the end. Uh, the first speaker, uh, Sandra Dillon, is a um, cancer survivor, a patient advocate, um, had uh, a disease of myelofibrosis, and um, was treated by uh, Dr. Catriona Jameson, who's chairing uh, the symposium um, and uh, with uh, a drug that, um, that she took uh, from bench uh, to bedside and FDA approval, uh, a tremendous drug. And we'll hear more about that, particularly in the treatment of uh, fibrotic uh, myeloid uh, disease. Um, the next speaker will be uh, Tanish Dorea. Um, Dr. Rea is a professor of pharmacology. Um, she uh, was recruited here from Duke about 10 years ago. Um, she's a global leader uh, in uh, the very early biology and seminal work um, defining cancer stem cells. Um, she works in hematologic malignancies is what she'll talk about now, but she also does a lot of work in um, a particular solid tumor, devastating tumor, pancreatic cancer. Uh, seminal work there, and I'm sure she'd be happy to discuss that in the in the Q and A if that comes up. She's very well funded. She's received an R35 uh, prestigious outstanding investigator award from uh, from the NCI. She's funded heavily by Stand Up to Cancer, particularly for the pancreas work. And I just learned that uh, yesterday she received uh, the Fred Alt uh, Award, a very prestigious award. Um, given by the uh, Cancer Research Institute, extremely competitive. And uh, again, that was just funded yesterday. Um, the next speaker is Rob Signer, who's an assistant professor uh, in the Division of Regenerative Medicine and uh, was recruited about four years ago from UT Southwestern, where um, he was obvious very early on, a rising star, doing uh, very elegant um, work studying proteostasis in stem cells, in particular in the, uh, in the relationship of aging uh, cancer and uh, stem cells. Uh, and then the last speaker, uh, Karen Abuti, um, is professor from um, City of Hope. Um, she um, has an incredible pedigree of training, including um, in, in neurogenetics and stem cells at Harvard. Um, and her major focus is on neural stem cells and brain tumors. So uh, a really exciting um, series of um, uh, uh, world-leading speakers. And at that point, I'll turn it over um, to Sandra and then come back in to moderate um, the discussion at the end. Thank you. Hello everyone and welcome back. Our next guest is Sandra Dillon and Sandra is a, a patient of uh, Dr. Katrina Jameson at UC San Diego. So Sandra, tell us your story. 
Hi. Um, well, uh, I started to see uh, Dr. Jameson um, back in, uh, I want to say, like 2010, 2011. Um, and um, I have a rare form of blood cancer. It's called um, myelofibrosis. And when I started to see Dr. Jameson, um, I was actually getting pretty, uh, really sick uh, with that, um, from that disease. And um, at the time there weren't a lot of um, treatment options, um, but I was referred to Dr. Jameson because she was running a trial um, uh, for a, a new, a new treatment. Um, and she, uh, she was able to get me on that trial. How did you feel about that? I mean, experimental therapies are promising in many ways, but they're experiments. I mean, how much did she explain to you about the, the, the amount of the dose you would get? Because sometimes in early stage clinical trials, you're not getting what's considered the optimum dose. You're given a, a safe dose just to make sure it doesn't do any more harm. Yes, it was, um, you know, at the time I was actually quite afraid of um, seeing doctors, of going to um, medical institutions. Like um, my experience had just been uh, really rough, um, but I was really getting sick and I knew that I, you know, I needed to overcome that fear of um, <laughs> going to, to hospitals and being treated uh, that said, you know, also combine it with um, an experimental treatment. But, you know, when you are, you're really in a position where you need uh, something that doesn't exist yet, um, you know, I felt also that this was an opportunity to, um, to really, you know, have hope, right? Get a chance to, to be on something that could work where nothing, um, nothing was available. Did the fact that it was being done at an academic medical center, a big place like UC San Diego, did that help reassure you in any way? Oh, most definitely. Um, the combination of uh, going to the Morse Cancer Center, which um, they are amazing to their patients. Uh, I just always had the warmest reception from absolutely everyone I interacted with, um, combined with you know, uh, it's one of the top <laughs> medical institutions around. So. Um, if there was a chance for um, a treatment like this, then it's, you know, it was there. <laughs> what happened afterwards? How quickly did you start to feel better? Um, it was pretty, pretty amazing. I, I had really low expectations, you know, from how sick I was and that it was experimental um, and, and cancer. You just expect to really, um, you know, you expect it to be awful. And... Um, my experience was the exact opposite of all of my expectations. I started to feel incredible um, within a few months, like uh, the pain and um, the side effects from my actual uh, cancer um, started to come down while the side effects from the drug just um, weren't very prevalent. Um, you know, I had a little bit of upset stomach and um, some nausea, but, you know, compared to what I was experiencing from the, the cancer, um, it was a walk in the park. Did you know much about stem cell research before all of this? I really didn't. Um, it, you know, this, this sort of thing is not my background. Um, and when I first got diagnosed, I went on, you know, I tried to find out as much as I possibly could about the disease. But 
Um, it's so rare, there just wasn't a lot out there. Um, and I remember reading about some sort of gene discovery um, called the JAK2 that was connected with um, my disease. But, you know, at the time, it, it just seemed so far-fetched to get from, you know, uh, some discovery of, of a genetic mutation to, you know, something I could actually use or be treated with. Um, but shockingly, <laughs> it um, became a, you know, a treatment option um, so quickly uh, within a matter of years, which again, <laughs> it's just unbelievable and um, amazing. How do you feel about being a pioneer in something? I mean, do you feel a responsibility now to talk about this all the time? Um, I, you know, it's funny. I, I don't think of myself as a pioneer. You know, there's there's an army of researchers and doctors and um, people that have come together to make this drug possible. Um, they are the pioneers. Uh, I feel um, both blessed uh, to to have the chance to be connected with these folks. Um, and you know, if anything, if uh, you know, my participation in this um, trial uh, has, has it's helped me, but the opportunity that it could help other people um, is truly meaningful to me. Well, I mean, all that great work that the researchers do, if it doesn't help people like you, it's up for nothing. So, yes, you are very much a pioneer. Uh, Sandra, thank, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me to speak here. Um, I'm going to be talking about targeting stem cell signals um, in therapy-resistant cancers uh, in solid and hemolignancies. Um, and I'll just start sort of generally with the idea that um, we have for um, many years now been interested in how pre-malignant lesions uh, with additional mutations uh, become malignant. And one of the things um, that we've worked on is not as much proliferation or cell death, which are actually aberrant in both states, uh, but the fact that there's a state change that occurs when pre-malignant lesions become malignant uh, and they undergo a differentiation arrest and are unable to differentiate further. So if you think about development where normally you go from being immature to being mature, in this case, it's as if these mutations are really unraveling uh, all the programs that were put in place during development um, so that these cells become more immature collectively. So you can think of this sort of in development in reverse. So in thinking of this as development in reverse, one of the things that we've done in context of trying to understand this is look at stem cell signals, which as you know, are high early in development and they fade or are extinguished with differentiation. And we and many other labs have shown that in cancer, uh, as pre-malignant lesions can be fairly low in the stem cell programs, uh, but these are elevated or hijacked and activated as the cancer becomes more aggressive. So the idea of studying this really long-term is that if we understood the signals that are turned on to drive this pre-malignant lesion to a full-on malignancy, those may be used as a molecular basis for enabling early detection. And if we knew the signals that are needed to take this pre-malignant lesion 
to a felon malignancy, it may be a strategy for early interception. And many of the pathways and drugs that uh, as a community we have discovered uh, could be very well be effective or more effective early on. And one of the challenges has been really that we use a lot of these drugs or uh, interception of these programs too late um, in disease. So in uh, looking at stem cell programs, uh, one of the pathways that we've been very interested in is an RNA binding protein called Masashi, and this was originally um, identified at Hopkins as an RNA binding protein in, uh, during Drosophila development, and when it's mutated or uh, there's a loss of function created, uh, instead of one bristle and a neuron, these flies get two bristles, and because of its double bristle phenotype, it was um, named Musashi after this iconic Japanese samurai who used to fight with two swords. And we had found several years ago that Musashi was actually very low in chronic phase disease and that it rose as disease became more and more aggressive in chronic myeloid leukemia, stepping through accelerated phase into blast crisis. So um, we had done work showing that if you block Musashi either through shRNA delivery or uh, through a genetic uh, allele, uh, you can gain in survival in these models and in, in leukemia growth, and also that patient samples that were in blast crisis would respond to blockade and Musashi. So one of the things that we'd noticed at the end of that work was that Musashi was in fact not just high in hemolignancies, but also in a lot of solid cancers. And this included aggressive cancers like GBM, high-grade breast cancer, colon cancer, and lung cancer, but no one really knew what its role was. Um, so we started to work with Andy Lowy, who's a pancreatic surgeon, on pancreas cancer, uh, which, as you know, uh, is a lethal and deadly disease uh, with very few options currently and much in need of a sort of altered clinical landscape. So we studied this to understand um, whether Musashi and other stem cell programs may be relevant in pancreas cancer progression, uh, partly because uh, if you look at how pancreas cancer progresses, it goes from being highly differentiated, although dysplastic, into a more malignant adenocarcinoma, which is fairly undifferentiated. Um, and so we took a model of pancreatic cancer called KPC, where the RAS and P53 alleles were mutated. Um, and in this model, there's a very uh, large tumor that develops in a few weeks. And when you delete Musashi in this, you get a much smaller tumor. But what the important thing is, actually, it's not just a smaller tumor, it's more benign, because if you look at a cross-section of the wild type versus the knockout, the wild type is all sheets of adenocarcinoma, whereas the knockout still has regions of normal tissue left, and whatever aberrant tissues are arising are in fact all pan in. So while the wild type has all adenocarcinoma, the knockout has uh, mostly pan in lesions and no adenocarcinoma, suggesting that these stem cell programs are really critical for powerful mediators like RAS and P53 to take a pre-malignant lesion into a full-on malignancy. So we've also developed uh, reporters to understand how these uh, massage positive cells contribute to disease. So these are knocked in so that cells that are positive for massage uh, are lit up in green or yellow. So this is uh, GFP or YFP. Um, and you can see that it lights up stem cells, but does not, is not active in differentiated cells. And in the brain, for example, it lights up the hippocampus and SVZ domain, which are enriched for stem and progenitor cells. 
and it's silent in most of the rest of the mature brain. Uh, so what we've done is cross this to the KPC model, again, the pancreatic cancer model, to really highlight the heterogeneity of the cells there. Um, so this shows you that you can, although everything is RAS and P53 mutated, uh, the GFP positive cells and GFP negative cells are pretty clear. Uh, and the GFP negative cells are predominantly what the tumor is made of. But the GFP positive cells are a small subset of cells that carry a stem cell program. Now, although they're a minority, in reality, they're more aggressive. So if you take the Musashi report positive and the negative, the report positive makes organoids, the report negative doesn't, and the report of positive cells really drive all of the lethality and the reporter negative cells don't. Um, and finally, if you treat with standard of care chemotherapy like gemcitabine, uh, what you see is that the reporter positive, the stem cell part of the tumor is very small at the outset, but as you treat with the chemo, uh, the reporter negative cells are depleted, the reporter positive cells are, remain behind. So they're really more resistant to these drugs that are currently used clinically, and they are really the main composition of residual disease or drug-resistant disease. So this is a really a potentially powerful platform for identifying drug-resistant cancers. Um, so this is a visual, in fact, like a movie of uh, pancreatic tumors in the KPC model highlighting the stem cells within the cancer. A lot of the blue, and this is, imagine a large sheet, are all RASP53 mutated, uh, but epigenetically there's a subset that's activated the stem cell program, and you can see that it's uh, spatially restricted um, and when you treat and, and that this can be really a good model to identify new programs and pathways that might allow us to eliminate this population um, along with chemo, which might be better at eliminating sort of the bulk of the tumor. So we've also imaged uh, beyond solid cancers, uh, leukemias. And one of the things that we found in leukemias is uh, that this is uh, using live imaging to non-invasive imaging to look inside the native microenvironment to understand how cancers grow. Um, this is just showing you a bone marrow, a view of the bone marrow in, um, uh, in a living uh, animal. Uh, and you can see sort of the blood vessels lit up and rest of the marrow lit up uh, in blue and the green are sort of the edges of the bone lit up with the reporter. Uh, but the important thing is that when we image leukemia cells, we don't actually find them uh, I mean, they are motile to some extent, but largely also enmeshed within the marrow. So one of the reasons uh, we were doing this is really to understand how much leukemia cells may depend on the microenvironment. Um, and uh, what we found is that a lot of leukemic cells are actually enmeshed and interacting with stromal cells and cells of the microenvironment, suggesting that they may utilize uh, interactions with the microenvironment as dependencies. Um, so the reason I um, mentioned those is really because that led us to looking for Musashi targets. So we knew Musashi was important, but we were really looking for targets that might enable cells to interact with the microenvironment. So we did a screen looking for targets of Musashi uh, in both blast crisis CML and AML, and we looked at common genes that were downstream of Musashi because we knew this was critical, but we really wanted to uh, 
find other downstream target that could be actionable or could be inhibited uh, by new strategies. Um, so through this, um, we um, identified a molecule called tetraspanin-3, um, and this was downstream of Masashi in both uh, AML and blast crisis AML. It's a large family of four pass transmembrane proteins that can serve as a scaffolding protein and can associate with integrants, allowing a sort of involvement in cell adhesion and proliferation, but very little was really known about it uh, and none really known about it in cancer. Um, so what we did was we inhibited uh, the tetraspanin protein and showed that either through SHRNA or by building a knockout that we developed, you could really gain in survival. So this is survival curve. This is uh, how fast the control uh, mouse uh, die, the mice die of the tumor. Um, and if you inhibit tetraspanin, there's a very clear gain in survival. This is a mouse model. And if you look at patient samples, what you see is if you block it either with a control or you block it with tetraspanin, there's a very a dramatic reduction in growth of the leukemia when you block this program. So based on this, um, we have uh, launched a program really targeting tetraspanins um, in context of leukemia. And these antibodies have now been developed with the help of CIRM and are being vetted and tested in context of uh, both in vitro uh, inhibition of leukemic growth as well as in vivo inhibition. Um, and so just to summarize, um, what we've really found is that interactions with the local environment can really amplify the impact of intracellular and oncogenic signals on leukemia stem cells and disease propagation, and that targeting these programs like tetraspanin-3 that we've done with the help of CIRM may be more effective uh, as a sort of a combinatorial blockade of both niche signals that support these stem cells or these aberrant aggressive stem cells within cancers, as well as blocking intracellular events, and collectively they may be better able to control disease. Um, so this is just to thank all the people who did the work. So all of the work on uh, Musashi and Tetraspanin and leukemia were carried out by Young Kwan and Javisha Bajaj. Um, and others involved in the leukemia side are uh, Kyle Spindler, Yutaka, and Mike Hamilton. And a lot of the testing um, that was done on these antibodies were done with Yutaka and Emily. Um, and I'd just like to also thank our collaborators, uh, Andy Lowy, uh, as well as Jeff Esko, Mark Ginsberg, Dan Van Hoff, um, and also thank CIRM for their support uh, of all of our work. Um, and I'd be happy to take any questions. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Rob Signer, and I'm an assistant professor at UC San Diego in the Division of Regenerative Medicine. And I'd like to start out today just by uh, thanking CIRM for everything that they've done over the past uh, 16 years or so, and uh, to thank the organizers of this meeting and for inviting me and giving me an opportunity to speak today. So my role here today is to tell a story of how CIRM's success isn't only quantified by how quickly and effectively it has accelerated the development of stem cell treatments to patients with unmet clinical needs, but also how it's grown and shaped the field of regenerative medicine by investing in trainees. 
As you all know, following the passage of Prop 71 in 2004 and the subsequent establishment of CIRM, a first round of funding was issued in 2006 and included a series of training grants that provided funding to pre-doctoral students as well as postdoctoral and clinical fellows. And as a third-year graduate student at the time at UCLA, I was a proud recipient of a CIRM pre-doctoral fellowship during this inaugural round of funding. The funding I received from CIRM was instrumental in my career development. It helped propel me through my PhD and helped me land a postdoctoral position in stem cell biology in Sean Morrison's lab, which ultimately led me back to California, where I established my own stem cell lab uh, at UC San Diego. Now, the reason I included these pictures on this slide wasn't just to embarrass myself, but because it reflects a central focus of research throughout my career, aging. So what I'll share with you today is how that investment by CIRM in a graduate student 14 years ago has contributed to the development of a new aspect of basic stem cell biology that has some exciting potential for impacting treatments in patients with degenerative and malignant diseases. So the work in my laboratory focuses on how hematopoietic or blood-forming stem and progenitor cells regulate proteostasis. So what is proteostasis? Well, as a word, proteostasis is a portmanteau of the words protein and homeostasis. And the idea that there is a network of biological pathways that regulate both the content and quality of the proteome. These pathways include physiological mechanisms that control protein synthesis, protein folding, protein trafficking, and protein degradation. So why is proteostasis important? Well, the maintenance of proteostasis is really key to ensuring normal development, resistance to environmental stress, coping with infection, and most notably, healthy aging and lifespan. So quite amazingly, genetic or environmental interventions that enhance the capacity to maintain proteostasis will actually extend organismal lifespan in an evolutionarily conserved manner. That is, if you can improve an organism's ability to maintain protein quality, it will actually live a longer and healthier life. In addition, the loss of proteostasis is considered one of the hallmarks of aging, and the accumulation of misfolded proteins is associated with a number of degenerative diseases, most notably neurodegenerative diseases. And the reason that neurons are thought to be particularly susceptible to misfolded proteins is that they're long-lived cells that can no longer divide. And it turns out the best way to eliminate misfolded proteins is by dilution that occurs through cell division. So hematopoietic stem cells are also very long-lived and they divide very infrequently. So a central hypothesis that drives our research is that stem cells are particularly dependent on the maintenance of proteostasis and that disruptions in proteostasis contribute to stem cell dysfunction in aging. And overall, we favor the idea that mechanisms that confer organismal longevity are conserved at the cellular level to maintain healthy, long-lived stem cells. And one of the most fascinating things that I hope you take away from this talk today is that many of these mechanisms, which are highly conserved and essential, actually function differently in stem cells than they do in restricted progenitors or other types of cells. So my foray into this arena really began during my postdoctoral fellowship, where I adapted new technology that allowed us to quantify rates of protein synthesis within single cells in vivo. And when we applied this to the hematopoietic system, we found a couple of striking things. The first was, contrary to what most people thought, that protein synthesis is a housekeeping function that's performed similarly by most cells, turns out not to be true. 
and that different cell types really establish very different rates of protein synthesis that are each maintained at their own homeostatic level. The other striking thing that we observed is that hematopoietic stem cells have unusually low rates of protein synthesis, much lower than many of these restricted progenitors and differentiated cells. And subsequent to our work, low protein synthesis has now been shown to be a conserved feature of stem cells present, as far as I know, in every type of stem cell that people have looked at within adult tissues. So low protein synthesis isn't just a feature of stem cells, but is actually really important for their function. And the way that we figured this out was by using a set of genetic mouse models. The first is where we used a mutation in a ribosomal gene, RPL24, that reduced protein synthesis by between 30 and 40% in stem cells. We also used a mouse where we conditionally deleted the tumor suppressor P10, which is a negative regulator of the PI3 kinase and mTOR signaling pathways, which are known to promote protein synthesis. And then we crossed these two mutations together and found that they could mutually rescue each other. So the ribosomal mutation prevents the increase in protein synthesis that we see with the P10 deletion. And the P10 deletion partially rescues the reduction in protein synthesis that we see with the RPL24 mutation. And when we tested stem cell function within these mice, what we found was that even these small changes in protein synthesis had dramatic effects on stem cell function. So the way we measure stem cell function is by measuring their ability to reconstitute the blood-forming system of an irradiated mouse. And you can see when we transplant just 10 stem cells, the level of reconstitution we get from wild-type cells in the black line, the ribosomal mutant with reduced protein synthesis impairs the regenerative function of stem cells. The P10 deletion, which increases protein synthesis, leads to a total loss of stem cell function. But incredibly, when we put these two mutations together, they mutually rescue each other. And you can see that the level of stem cell activity that we get is comparable to the wild type. And so when I started my lab, we really wanted to understand why these changes in protein synthesis were so detrimental for stem cells. And we went back to considering protein homeostasis and that we had the idea that increased protein synthesis might increase the generation of misfolded or unfolded proteins. And so we needed a way to figure out how to actually measure these things within small numbers of hematopoietic stem cells. And so we did this using two different approaches. The first is where we measured levels of ubiquitolated protein. So ubiquitolated protein are proteins that are targeted for degradation and consist mostly of misfolded proteins. And you can see here, when we compare the level of ubiquitolated or misfolded proteins in stem cells, they have much fewer of these as compared to restricted progenitors. We then also adapted a cell permeable dye that allowed us to quantify unfolded proteins in these cells. And similarly, the stem cells have fewer unfolded proteins than these restricted progenitors. Importantly, this was directly tied to the rate of protein synthesis. So going back to our genetic mouse models, we found that in our P10 deficient mice that have increased protein synthesis, well, they have increased misfolded and unfolded proteins. And when we block this with the ribosomal mutation, we block the increase in protein synthesis. We also block the accumulation of these misfolded and unfolded proteins. And so we really wanted to understand what happens in a stem cell when you accumulate misfolded proteins. And I'm gonna tell you one of those small stories right now. And that is that you can activate a stress response pathway of which there are several in the stem cells. And we focused on this heat shock response, which is actually the central pathway that regulates cytoplasmic proteostasis within cells. 
So under normal conditions, the heat shock pathway is relatively inactive because it's regulated by a master regulator transcription factor called heat shock factor one or HSF1. And under steady state conditions, HSF1 is sequestered in the cytoplasm where it binds to chaperones that assist with protein folding, things like HSP90 or TRIC. Now under conditions of protein stress, these chaperones will actually bind unfolded proteins and allow HSF1 to translocate to the nucleus where it functions as a transcription factor to drive the expression of things like heat shock proteins that can help to restore proteostasis. So in stem cells where there are very few misfolded proteins, we actually don't really see activation of HSF1. So when we look in the nucleus of young adult hematopoietic stem cells, HSF1 is basically absent. But when we start to look in aging stem cells, we can see HSF1 begin to accumulate within the nucleus of these older hematopoietic stem cells. And this is telling us that aging stem cells are starting to experience protein stress while they age. And surprisingly, we found that one of the functions of HSF1 was to actually suppress increases in protein synthesis in aging stem cells. You can see that here that when we delete HSF1, the older stem cells show about a 50% increase in the rate of protein synthesis. So is HSF1 actually important for stem cell function? Well, when we look at young adult stem cells, remember these cells have very few misfolded proteins and they don't show activation of HSF1, we can conditionally delete HSF1 from our stem cells and see that there's no effect on stem cell regenerative activity either in a primary transplant or a secondary transplant. But if we aged these mice out, when HSF1 becomes activated, now we can see that HSF1 is in fact important to maintain the regenerative function of aging stem cells. Now, in addition to this role in aging, we found an important role for HSF1 elsewhere that we think has important therapeutic relevance uh, as it comes to stem cells and, and stem cell transplantation. So one of the biggest limitations in the hematopoietic stem cell field for many years is that we've been unable to effectively culture these cells outside of the body. And we really don't have a good explanation as to why. And one of the things that we found is that a pathway that gets particularly disrupted when we put these stem cells into culture is protein synthesis. So you can see that within four hours in culture, hematopoietic stem cells have about a 700% increase in protein synthesis. And within 18 hours, that's about a 2000% increase which if you remember, just a 30% increase in vivo is sufficient to impair stem cells. And consistent with what we saw in aging stem cells, our stem cells in culture also begin to start accumulating HSF1 within their nucleus. So what we did was to test if HSF1 is actually important for maintaining stem cells in culture. And we did this by culturing wild type or HSF1 deleted stem cells uh, for 10 days. And the way that we do this is to plate just 10 purified stem cells, culture them for a period of 10 days, and then transplant them with wild-type bone marrow into irradiated mice. And you can see here that HSF1 deficiency doesn't impair proliferation of cells in culture, but when we transplant those cells, we see that the HSF1 deficient cells have a severe reduction in their reconstituting ability telling us that HSF1 activation is actually promoting stem cell maintenance in culture. And so now that we knew that HSF1 is getting activated and is important for stem cell maintenance, 
we wondered if we could further enhance the activation of HSF1 to support stem cell growth and culture. And the way that we tried to do this was using small molecule inhibitors of HSP90 or TRIC, which remember these bind to HSF1 and sequester it in the cytoplasm. And we show here that within cultured hematopoietic stem cells, that addition of these inhibitors does indeed lead to a significant enhancement of HSF1 present within the nucleus of these cultured stem cells. And so we did the key experiment where we cultured purified stem cells in the presence of either our vehicle or either the HSP90 inhibitor or the TRIC inhibitor, and then we performed serial transplantation experiments. And you can see in primary transplants, the addition of an HSP90 or TRIC inhibitor leads to about a two-fold increase in the regenerative activity of the stem cells. This is not actually due to stem cell expansion, but we think better maintenance of these stem cells. And the really big difference comes upon secondary transplant, where we now see a three-fold or greater increase in the reconstituting activity of these previously cultured stem cells, indicating to us that the HSP90 inhibitor or TRIC inhibitor are really enhancing the maintenance of stem cell fitness in culture. Finally, I'll show you that the effect of these small molecules is in fact due to HSF1 activation. So if we repeat all of these experiments using HSF1 deficient cells, now all of a sudden the HSP90 inhibitor no longer has any effect on stem cell regenerative activity. And the same is true for the TRIC inhibitor. And the last piece of data that I'll show you today is that many of these mechanisms that we've observed initially with mouse stem cells are actually appear to be conserved with human stem cells. So when we culture human cord blood derived hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells, we see that they also exhibit a rapid and massive increase in protein synthesis and they activate HSF1. And I can tell you also that these small molecules have the same effect on human stem cells to enhance HSF1 activation. And we're excited to continue studying this in, in the context of human cells. So with that, let me just thank all the people that did this work. And in particular, leading our protein quality study was Lorena Hidalgo, a former postdoc. And leading our HSF1 study is a former postdoc, Miriam Kruta. And thanks to everyone, uh, all our collaborators, all our funders, and to CIRM for everything that they've done. Uh, and thank you all for your attention. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me today. I'm here to talk to you about um, neural stem cell targeted anti-cancer therapies going from bench to bedside, and also show you some of the work that CIRM uh, has enabled us to do through their grant funding. So stem cells are regenerative. I'm sure you've heard a lot about that today. Um, they can regenerate skin, blood, bone, heart, nerves. I show this cartoon that you can be anything you want to be when you grow up. And it's the researchers' goal to push the cells in the direction that they want. Um, you can turn these stem cells into heart, beating heart cells, into nerves, um, into skin tissue. Uh, however, what I looked at the stem cells for is not regenerative, but that they are also pathotropic. What I mean by that is that the stem cells are attracted to areas of pathology. And I was a cancer researcher, so I was interested to know, are they attracted to cancer cells, right? Cancer cells invade tissue, they do damage. Would the stem cells go there? So just to give you an overview, a lot of the work being done now um, 
by STEM investigators and others is stem cell replacement. There are trials on macular degeneration going on now where they actually inject the stem cells into the eye to replace the damaged cells in the eye and restore vision. Remyelination, to remyelinate nerves that are damaged with spinal cord injury. So again, stem cells from when you're born as you develop, they know how to do all these things and make normal nerves and normal eye cells and heart tissue. But when it gets damaged later on, can you put the stem cells there and regenerate the tissue? Since they knew how to do it when you were developing, can they do it now? Or trick the environment into regenerating the tissue. So promotion of host tissue regeneration, we're looking at stroke, Parkinson's disease, ALS, cell replacement. So again, those are all regenerative properties of stem cells. What I'm looking at is pathotropism, or in this case, tumor tropism, that the stem cells are in fact attracted to invading tumor cells. And if they are, can we localize the treatment only to the tumor cells and then avoid off-target toxic effects? So what I discovered about, wow, 20 years ago, um, is that neural stem cells, so these are stem cells that have already been committed to becoming brain cells, different cells in the brain. So neural stem cells, they have an inherent ability to track down cancer cells. So this is not something I did to them. It was something I observed. They can cross the blood-brain barrier to the brain. And since they can track down cancer cells, I'm using them as a delivery vehicle to deliver different therapeutic payloads directly to the tumor sites. And in this way, normal tissues are spared from the toxic side effects and reducing suffering and improving quality of life. For example, when a patient gets chemo um, intravenously, the chemo is killing everything that's dividing quickly. It doesn't distinguish between your tumor cells and for instance, your hair cells or your bone marrow or your skin, which is why you get so many side effects. It's killing everything that's dividing quickly. In this case, if we can activate the, the chemotherapy only at the tumor sites, we would avoid all those other effects. And that was the goal, to improve quality, quality of life. So early studies that we did, this is a model where there's a tumor in the brain. The tumor is, is the dark red. And a surgeon can go ahead and remove the tumor in the brain. We, we looked at brain tumors first. But the surgeon will miss cells that already invaded into the normal tissue. And unlike liver or lung, you can't remove part of the brain tissue. So the question is, you can remove the tumor, but how do you get those invading cells without hurting the rest of the brain? On the left, it shows that the NSCs here, they're dyed blue, that when we inject the stem cells into a tumor, they don't just sit there, they move. They love the tumor environment. They distribute all over the tumor. Also, they cross normal tissue to follow invading tumor cells. And in the right panel, we see tumors always are making, taking over blood vessels to feed itself so it can spread. And as you can see, the stem cells love these new blood vessels too. So it seems like whatever's making the tumor more aggressive, more invasive, is also attracting these neural stem cells. So over the years, 
we've used stem cells as a platform to target several different anti-cancer agents directly to invasive cancer cells. We've done this in models of glioma, medulloblastoma, metastasis to the brain. This is an, an increasing population. There's over 180,000 new cases a year of brain metastasis because as our treatments have gotten better systemically, for example, for lung cancer, breast cancer, more and more patients are presenting with brain mets because a lot of these chemotherapies and drugs do not cross the blood-brain barrier. So patients are presenting that way now. Also, if we inject the stem cells intravenously, they also, they will cross the blood-brain barrier and localized tumor sites. Finally, and this is a more recent grant that I'll talk about, neural stem cells, when they're injected intravenously or into the abdomen, they will localize to metastatic cancers throughout the body, including breast carcinoma, neuroblastoma, and ovarian cancer. So these cells will stop at the tumor sites, they're recognizing something in the tumor vasculature, and they'll penetrate into the tumor. So again, I didn't do anything to the stem cells to make them tumor tropic. This is what we observed and discovered. What we're doing is adding a uh, therapeutic payload to carry it directly to the tumor sites. So we started with brain tumor therapy and brain tumor treatment today, uh, there've been advances in surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. However, despite all those advances, these tumors are virtually incurable and lethal. Why? Well, there's no clear boundaries of these tumors. By the time they're diagnosed, they've already spread away from one primary mass. And when tumors spread away from the main tumor site, that's invasive or metastases. Again, the chemotherapies do not cross the blood-brain barrier well. About 98% of them don't get through. And when they do get through, there's poor tumor penetration. So there has not been a significant advance. The prognosis is about two years from the time of diagnosis and only six months, six to eight months from when it recurs. So what our lab did is we developed a neural stem cell line for clinical use. And allogeneic means that we can use this one line and apply it to many different people, to all different patients. Autologous is when they take it from the patient and give it back to the same patient but we were looking for an off-the-shelf product, something that can be frozen down in vials and then used as needed for the different pa patients. And we've characterized this. Um, they're frozen down at City of Hope a GMP facility, which is for clinical products. They're minimally in immunogenic, so they don't get rejected very easily. Um, it's expandable. So we've engineered this cell line so that we do not need new tissue. We do not need to go back to any new um, characterization. Every vial of these cells has exactly the same thing. Now, these stem cells can be modified further with different therapeutic payloads. And we were the first to take this to human trials with an off-the-shelf NSC line to deliver a therapeutic agent. And our first therapy was NSC, neural stem cell-mediated enzyme prodrug gene therapy. And this is what I had mentioned, that the stem cells will go to the tumor site, that we've engineered them to make an enzyme that does nothing by itself. But now when you give an inactive prodrug, 
it's, and that does cross to the brain, the enzyme will convert it to the active drug, the chemotherapeutic, only in the area where the tumors are. So the stem cells are administered, they localize to the tumor, they make their enzyme, we give an inactive prodrug, so now you have localized chemotherapy production because it's only gonna be made where the stem cells are and the stem cells are only where the tumor sites are. Now, CIRM gave me um, an $18 million disease team award in 2010 to take a brand new NSC treatment to patients with glioma. This was how we did it. We took our stem cells, we engineered them to make an enzyme. In this case, it's called CE. Then we treat the patient with irinotecan, and then the stem cell enzyme converts it to a drug called SN38. This is 3,000 times more potent, more anti-cancer effect than irinotecan alone. And we're only localizing it to the tumor sites, so this toxic drug is not going through the whole body and not affecting normal tissues. It's only being made where the tumor is. Now, one of the things besides getting to clinical trial, I think we have one patient left on this clinical trial, is the funding from CIRM enabled us to get additional funding based on what we discovered. And we did get $2 million from NIH to conduct the clinical trial. And we also got almost $5 million from NIH to apply this same treatment that we developed for brain tumor, the exact same cell product for metastatic neuroblastoma injected intravenously. And this will be going to clinical trial hopefully within the next six months. So it's just to point out that what CIRM has enabled us to do in our original proposal has had ramifications for other tumors and other uh, payloads. So we did do a phase one. As, as I said, we have one patient left, dose escalation, multi-dose trial. The patients come in with recurrent glioma, the surgeon removes the tumor, and then the stem cells that are making the CE are injected into the, the resection cavity wall. And two centimeters around the wall is where most of the recurrent tumor happens. But again, I showed you there's going to be distant tumor sites that the surgeon will miss. And we believe our stem cells migrate to those distant sites also. So now you have the stem cells localized to the tumor sites, and we give the irinotecan drug. And now we make that SN38, that powerful chemotherapeutic, only at the tumor sites. We also have a City of Hope has an alpha clinic, a CIRM alpha clinic. So we leave a catheter in under the skull if the patient doesn't show, but that way they can come in every month or every two weeks to get another dose of stem cells and the drug. So we can give repeat treatment rounds. Our clinical trials so far have demonstrated that the stem cells are moving to distant tumor sites, even in the opposite side of the brain, and they are converting the prodrug to the active chemotherapeutic. So we have proof of concept. Again, these initial phase one trials are for safety. They're quite small, but once they're finished, we can move to phase two larger studies and increasing dosing. And then uh, I wanted to just finish with a new translational grant that we were awarded. We went to clinical trial with an oncolytic virotherapy, so the same stem cells, but now they're making an oncolytic virus. This virus will infect tumor cells, 
It will keep dividing till it bursts the tumor cell open, and then it will spread to the next tumor cells and the next tumor cells, and it should keep amplifying until it hits normal tissue. This is important because even if the tumor cells are chemo-resistant or radiation-resistant, it's effective. There are many trials with free virus. Free virus gets neutralized by the immune system. It doesn't reach the tumor sites well, and it doesn't penetrate well. And we also can't give multiple treatment rounds because of the immune system. By encasing the virus in the stem cells and let the stem cells protect it on its way to the tumor sites, we can get more of the virus to the tumor site and we can give multiple rounds of treatment. So the grant that we have just received in February is for ovarian cancer. 22,000 women per year are affected. Stage three ovarian cancer is when the tumor cells are in the abdomen. And many of, uh, after treatment with cisplatin, paclitaxel, they become resistant to the chemo. So we wanted to try this same product of the oncolytic virus into the ovarian cancer. And what we have shown so far is that the stem cells here, they're red and orange. These are tumor sites. When we inject them intra-abdominally, they localize to the ovarian tumor sites, to multiple ovarian tumor sites throughout the abdomen. They're not localizing to normal tissue, kidney or liver. So they'll be at the tumor sites. They'll be making their oncolytic virus. They'll infect the tumor cells, lyse them, release more virus, and again, we hope to get an amplifying effect until the tumors are gone. So this is the $2.8 million serum trend, and that is to get us to the point of submission to the FDA for a clinical trial with this oncolytic virus neural stem cells to go into stage three ovarian cancer patients. And I just want to thank CIRM. I want to thank my lab who does all the work. I just get to uh, present it. And all our uh, clinicians, brain tumor and ovarian cancer. And again, CIRM has enabled us to go from basic science to translational to the clinic. It's a big team effort and it is an expensive effort. And um, we're very grateful to have gotten funding and to be able to do this. Thank you so much. Um, I'll take your questions. I've always been interested in some of the issues with oncolytic viruses, which are kind of the ultimate precision immunotherapy in a way. Um, but, you know, as I'm sure you know, uh, after the melanoma um, uh, oncolytic virus was approved by the FDA, there's been really a lot of, I mean, nothing else is, that I know of is even close. I, I know that the Duke group has been working with, uh, you know, a GBM uh, oncolytic virus, but, it, you know, it's pretty slow going. Um, so two questions, you know, maybe it can help us understand why it, it's been so difficult to, to move oncolytic viruses to the clinic. And, and then two, I couldn't resist, but do you think we'll be able to make some sort of oncolytic virus out of COVID? I think it has had a rocky start into the clinic. And uh, a lot of the, they're not seeing the efficacy that we were hoping to see with the free virus. And I think that's a lot of the problem is, is the neutralization by the antibodies and not getting enough, enough of the virus to the tumor sites. Um, so we're actually now collaborating with uh, several companies that already have free virus in the clinic and trying to see if we deliver that virus with stem cells, are we going to improve the efficacy of the clinical trial? So we're looking at that. And then, um, 
What was the other question? Well, the other question was the C, the C word. Um, the, um, oh, the COVID, yeah. So with, all, with all of the study that's yes. going on with COVID, with SARS-2, beyond any uh, I've ever seen before, everything about it, um, every new receptor, campus, and so on, I wonder if out of all that science will come a way to create, you know, an oncolytic vector maybe for I, lung cancer or something. Yeah, absolutely. So actually we're looking at the, since the stem cells are making anti-inflammatory exosomes as well, the stem cells themselves may work for the ARDS. But um, the fact that you can engineer these viruses to, to anything, you know, anti, um, even the checkpoint inhibitors. So this is a way to target different uh, uh, therapies directly to these inflammatory sites. So I do think that's already in play of engineering, but there's so many different viruses out there. Um, we're trying to do some comparative studies. Sorry, that's my puzzle. Um, either, um, you know, adenomyxoma, uh, the chimeric pox viruses, herpes virus. So there's there's so many. I think we still have to figure out which, which virus is most effective for which cancer. But then they can be engineered to deliver anti-COVID anything. And I Great. think they, they're doing that now. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, Sandra, um, what, um, what advice would you have for um, uh, any person now that's considering stem cell therapy, um, particularly in, in an investigational setting? What advice do you have? Um, well, uh, I would say that, uh, you know, um, uh, my disease, it pushed me towards this because, uh, you know, I, I really felt like I, you know, I was trying to survive. And, um, and even if you're pushed in a position where, you know, it, it's like you have no, you feel that you might not have any other choice, you're still afraid of um, other, you know, other aspects of what's going on. I certainly came into, um, into my treatment with a lot of fear around um, the process of being treated uh, of, of uh, you know, um, you know, all of the poking and the prodding and the tests. And uh, I would say that, that expressing that um, with your doctor and, um, and the teams that are going to be um, working with you is, uh, you know, is really important um, because there's, you know, there's ways to, uh, you know, overcome those fears. And um, certainly there were a lot of tests that I was very afraid of. Um, and we found ways to, to make it, you know, like it, it make things okay. And uh, along that process, it, I really learned how much um, it's a partnership and how much, you know, it's a community of people that are, are working together, um, you know, uh, to, to create like these really amazing new treatments. And so um, it's okay to be afraid um, and it's really important to uh, express what's going on with you um, because there's a lot that, uh, you know, uh, your experiences, your side effects, all of that is um, uh, kind of essential knowledge um, to, uh, to your doctor and to your treatment team. So I'd say um, communication, um, honesty with your own fear, <laughs> and, um, and knowing that, that these folks are here to um, really do what ever they can to um, to you know give you a give you a shot and give you a, a chance to to go forward and this is just incredibly exciting research um, uh, it's unbelievable to me <laughs> well you, you definitely uh, 
you know, got great intel to end up with Dr. Jameson. <laughs> I'm sure that that helped a, a little. Um, <laughs> so um, the uh, maybe uh, Tanishta will we'll go to you next. So you know, excited to hear um, your interest in precancer um, uh, with panins and so on. Um, can you give a sense, you know, since you've really, you know, done some of the really early seminal work uh, on the whole concept of a cancer stem cell before it was really accepted? Um, and and your, your big paper did a lot to, to, to catalyze that. Um, the, the role of, of Musashi or, or cancer stem cells in general um, in early, you know, pre-invasive, pre-malignant disease uh, compared to, let's say, metastases. Is there um, a sense of um, where uh, cancer uh, stem cells may act more prominently or is it, you know, very specific to the, to the cell and the, and the disease? Yeah, thanks, uh, Scott. Um, I think some of our work early on, and especially right now, we're in the middle of a project really tracking how cancers arise uh, and what cells they arise from uh, seems to indicate that they initiate also from cells that are high for stem cell programs and progenitor-like states, um, and that those uh, particular cells within a panin or an early uh, stage of uh, precancerous lesion are particularly primed to move forward and particularly sensitive to transformation. So, um, you know, they do change over time um, as they evolve, but uh, through each of those steps, it seems like the cells that are particularly enriched for those programs are particularly your riskiest cells in terms of promoting uh, transition or progression to the next stage and full-on malignancies. So that's sort of uh, what we're seeing in pancreatic cancer, and others have uh, done some of that work in leukemia as well. So um, in terms of uh, interactions with um, immune cells and targets, and, and particularly genomic determinants uh, of um, tumor genesis, from P53 to you know copy number alterations, mm -hmm. how do those um, interact? What do we know about the interaction of those and stem cells in you know, the tumor genesis? genetic process, particularly the early? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some sort of really interesting intersection between the genomic changes and the epigenetic changes. And what we're seeing from really recent upcoming work um, is that there's sort of a baseline mutation that occurs that starts to, you know, propagate through the cells. But uh, there's uh, in addition to the genomic changes and copy number changes, which accrue over time, uh, there is epigenetic changes that uh, essentially specify the particular state of the cell. And that when you have the mutation and that epigenetic state, you are particularly resistant and you're particularly able to take the precancerous lesion into the next stage or resist therapies at uh, a late stage tumor. So it's some, um, I think, collective event uh, that leads to this cancer stem cell state or the particularly aggressive uh, drug resistant state that is uh, the most aggressive and dangerous essentially uh, to cancer and really needs to be controlled at the level of uh, 
additional strategies on top of the usual chemotherapy and radiation. Great. I, we do have a question on oncolytic viruses, but <clears throat> I want to first go to Rob Signer. Um, so a lot of us aren't that familiar with proteostasis. I'm embarrassed to say I'm not, and, and you've explained it to me a lot. It's a pretty complicated concept, I think. What is the, the clinical implications of that work, uh, or what are you thinking in terms of um, next steps to get this into clinic to help patients? So thanks, Scott, for the question. It's, uh, you know, it, I think it has multiple clinical uh, implications. You know, in regards directly to our work on the effect of stem cells in culture, I think that we can start to develop new ways to better grow, maintain, and expand hematopoietic stem cells in culture that uh, can support better transplantation programs. So making stem cells more widely available to donors that might not have, or excuse me, to uh, patients who might not have uh, available donors for those stem cells, or in the context of you know, gene therapy or gene editing technologies, uh, where the addition of molecules that can enhance protein homeostasis, that you actually get better quality stem cells out the other end. And, and transplanting, you know, better stem cells and larger numbers of stem cells can help to reduce, uh, you know, some of the, the failure that, that can occur uh, with transplantation or some of those effects. Um, at the same time, everything we're understanding about proteostasis regulation within normal stem cells, we're now also adapting to study in the context of malignant stem cells and, and in cancer and identifying new therapeutic vulnerabilities uh, in that way. And so we just got a, a new big grant in order to uh, target aspects of protein synthesis within uh, cancer stem cells that we think uh, can provide a new unique therapeutic opportunities uh, that haven't really been looked at carefully quite yet. Right. Thanks, Rob. So Karen, um, question to you about uh, oncolytic viruses. Um, the question is, can tumors develop resistance or immunity to oncolytic viruses uh, like they can with other drugs? And, and what do we know about that? Um, yes, you will get an immune response to the virus. Um, so when you give it free, you can get one round in. Uh, with the stem cells, preclinically, we're seeing we can get two or three rounds in, but you're still releasing the virus, and eventually you're still getting an immune response to it. We're just getting more of it to the tumor site, so it's working more until the immune system neutralizes it. We're looking at combination oncolytic viral therapies now, preclinically. I think you're going to have to use just like a cocktail of chemo, a cocktail of different um, viruses. What we're looking at is when we use the oncolytic virus that's in clinical trial now, What's left? What are, the, what are the tumor cells that escaped it to begin with? And what, what's the next thing we need to hit it with to get rid of it? So I don't think, I don't see a silver bullet yet. But um, the good thing about uh, the immune response, the oncolytic virus, it's like biphasic response. So first it's killing the tumor cells because it's just dividing, the virus keeps dividing in the tumor cells till, till it bursts it open, lysis. So it's okay for chemo-resistant cells and radio-resistant cells. But now we see that there's a secondary, longer-term effect where you're getting an immune response to all those new antigens that were exposed by the tumors. So you get a secondary immunotherapy response. I don't think that's characterized super well yet, especially in the clinic. But, um, but to answer your question again, I think it's going to be a cocktail of different viruses, either sequentially or given at the same time. But we're hoping to get two or three rounds in. Yeah. 
Great, and, and there's a few more questions uh, for you, Karen. Um, great talk, it, it says, which I agree. Um, so the issue of delivery, um, this issue about delivery of the oncolytic virus um, through the NSC, um, and you know how could that relate to um, NSC-derived exosomes for neuroblastoma or, or neurological disorders, and then finally could compare the therapeutic potential between the NSCs from iPSCs versus uh, OFC or other NSCs, a lot of acronyms, but you know those. So, um, all right, so that we're using the stem cells to produce the virus, right? So the stem cells are the producer cell line for the virus. So it depends what, what indication you want to use it for. The exosomes that the stem cells are always producing, we're characterizing them now and profiling them, but obviously there's a lot of anti-inflammatory properties of the exosomes. Um, I wasn't aware of all the exosome fields until this past couple of years. So um, we are looking at that. What, what is the exosomes do in the context of cancer? But really we want to look at them in the context of dementia or Alzheimer's or wherever there's chemo brain, wherever there's inflammation in the brain. Um, and then as it compares to other neural stem, stem cell types, I honestly think you have to characterize whatever you're working with. I think it's different from lab to lab and company to company. Um, the reason I originally made these neural stem cells immortalized and clonal, it's a normal female karyotype, is so that in my preclinical animal experiments, I'm using the same thing every time. It's not changing over passage, it's not changing over time. So when I change all my therapeutic variables, I know at least the stem cells are it's consistent. Um, later, I brought them to clinical trial because it seemed like they're so characterized. Um, and just to give an example, like mesenchymal stem cells will lose their tumotropic properties after five passages. So as for iPSCs and ONSCs, um, I think you have to characterize the population you have and you have to make sure that it's consistent in its function over time and passage. But I think everybody's working with something different. I mean, you change the media, you change the plastics that you're using, it's changing the profile of the exosomes and it's changing the profile of your stem cells. So um, anybody who's looking to go to clinical trial, you really, the more you can do preclinically to characterize and get what's stable, the easier it'll be when you move it to the clinic. Yeah, actually, you know, I, I was right. You know, in, in the context of oncolytic viruses, there seems to be a lot of interest in uh, brain tumors, GBM. You know, the, the Duke uh, vaccine and there's, uh, uh, I mean, the Duke oncolytic virus and there's work, um, Jeremy Rich has published with um, uh, Zika virus as a vehicle uh, for brain tumors. Um, is there a reason why there seems to be a lot of focus on brain tumors? I mean, those are the yeah. most promising ones, Duke, and, and there, and, and the work you're yeah. doing, it's all brain tumor. Several reasons. Um, one, um, brain tumors are resistant to chemo. All right, by the time we get to treat, by the time it's recurrent, right, they've already failed surgery, chemo, and radiation. So you need a, a way to kill them like by lysis from the inside out that won't be um, resistant to. But secondly, I mean, I, I don't know how to say this in a, in a recurrent glioma patients have six months left to live. They have no other treatment. There's no standard of care. So in a way, it's, it's the fastest route to getting an oncolytic virus into the, uh, into the clinic. Um, it's the most promising, I think, for brain tumors, but it's also 
only a first indication. I do think these oncolytic viruses that they're trying in brain tumors, actually we just got a CIRM TRAN grant. So the oncolytic virus that we're putting in newly diagnosed glioma patients at Northwestern, um, it, we're using the same product now since it showed safety and we're gonna go to phase two to see if there's efficacy. Um, use the same product for ovarian cancer because it turns out they also um, respond to it. So um, I think it's just the initial path in. Great, thank you. So there's only one more question that's uh, come up. So if people have others, please send them. This is for Dr. Rhea. Um, any insights into architecture of pancreatic tumor with Masashi positive cells in the center? What causes that? Uh, or what is the significance of that? Those are the questions. Uh, thanks, Scott. Um, so, you know, we're really interested in that because I think when we first did the imaging, we thought the stem cells would be disseminated throughout the tumor, but uh, for some reason they were spatially restricted in these domains. Um, and they do have uh, high levels of a lot of adhesion molecules that seem to be uh, restricted those to those cells or enriched in those cells relative to the non-stem cell fraction. Um, I've also been, um, I've also talked to folks at UCSF who study sort of the glycocalyx and there's uh, some uh, possibility that there's sort of this uh, covering essentially around those cells that make, may make them more resistant or associate differentially with the microenvironment. Um, I don't really have an answer. So um, but I can say that those things are enriched in those cells, and they're also highly mucinous and mucin-producing. So um, we don't really know exactly why they're spatially restricted, but it's possible that because of that, there's also a microenvironment around them um, that is particularly protective of their drug-resistant state. Um, <clears throat> but that is um, an area that we're investigating right now. Thank you. So there is one more, but I guess, well, I, before I ask that, if there are questions that any of the speakers have for other speakers, um, open it up after this. Um, and so this is to you, Karen, I think, is it known whether these NSCs also target immune cells as well as the cancer cells in the tumor? We're looking at, uh, I don't know if they target, they target the cancer cells, the invading cancer cells. What, what we're looking at now is the stromal cells and, and the surrounding populations. So we are trying to profile uh, what else is targeted, but I'm looking at it more for the virus. So if the virus, let the virus target the stromal cells also, not just the tumor cells. It's what we're looking at with David Curiel with the CRAD viruses. Okay. Um. It makes me think of a question just that uh, you may have mentioned, Tanishta. Um, you know, in pancreatic cancer, the stroma is obviously very problematic, that, you know, the desmoplastic reaction, essentially leather covering uh, viable tumor cells in the pancreas. And that's a challenge, obviously, getting chemotherapy in. How, do you, how will the, your, your Musashi work and, and the uh, agency develop uh, following that lead? Um, how do you plan to sort of work around you know, that dense stroma to get to the pancreatic tumor cell? Um, I mean, we haven't directly looked. I mean, I think there's some data now that it's not a, you know, a situation where the stroma is resistant to anything. Rather, there are molecular 
you know, agents or particular cell types that can make their way through the microenvironment. Although clearly, I think there's also papers that show that if the chemotherapy is delivered locally, it's much more effective. Um, so what I can say is that um, when we have tested um, at least tool agents against Masashi or other uh, markers of stem cells or other mediators of stem cells, um, we have seen efficacy both in autochthonous models um, as well as patient-derived xenograft. So we're, um, you know, obviously aware that the microenvironment is plays a role in reducing efficacy. Uh, but I think the data in the field is emerging that it's not sort of a pan uh, blockade of everything as much as it may block some cells and not others, and then parts of the stroma might be inhibitory and parts may be sort of tumor promoting and, and some may inhibit the tumor. So it's sort of a complex emerging field, um, but everything we've tried is usually tested in context of an autochthonous model where the microenvironment is intact. There is actually one more while you're thinking for Tanisha. Um, does MSI directly bind T-SPAN3 RNA or is it binding to a gene epistatic to T-SPAN3? Yeah, it actually is a direct uh, target of Masashi. So when we initially did the work, um, it, we were looking for direct targets uh, that might be on the surface and may be targetable using an antibody strategy. So this was one of them that actually not only was downstream and being blocked when Masashi was gone, but it rose when Masashi was delivered um, and has Masashi binding sites um, uh, so it is a direct target in terms of binding, uh, Musashi binding the tetraspan and RNA and regulating uh, its expression or translation and stability. Um, and the work that we're doing with CIRM um, is really to develop a therapeutic antibody against tetraspanin uh, in order to be able to target the stem cell fraction, uh, both in leukemia and possibly other cancers using that strategy. So it is a, as direct a target as we've seen um, in, in either pancreas or in leukemia work that we've done. Thanks uh, to all of our uh, four wonderful speakers. Um, incredible sec session on cancer stem cells. Uh, uh, I know I learned a lot. So uh, thanks to everyone for, for presenting and for everyone that attended uh, through Zoom. Thanks very much.